Good morning. Thank you, worship team. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 as we continue our study there. The more I read in 1 Corinthians, the more I'm realizing just how troubled Paul was about his Christian friends in Corinth. He didn't doubt their salvation that they were believers in Christ, but he was troubled about their relationships. They struggled with their relationships. Starting back in chapters 1 and 2, it was the whole disunity and taking sides and who's my favorite leader, preacher, person. And then it was immoral relationships, and then it was marriage and divorce issues, and then it was lawsuits. Relationships. If, if you think to jobs you've had, uh, probably the biggest issues in whatever company you've worked in has been relationships. Can people work together and get along? And if you think through anything in your family, parenting, marriage, siblings, whatever it is, it, it's relationships. And so the same thing is true in church. And, and Corinth in particularly seemed to struggle with relationships. And the issue as we're into this part of chapter 11 seems to be that there were those among them, not all, but there were those among them who had this superior attitude looking down on others. And it seemed to be a wealth and status kind of an issue. Wealth and status. And it particularly seemed to be a contradiction that they would gather together as a church like we do here and share the communion elements, the bread and the cup, which was supposed to draw us together that we're all the same. And in fact, there was this whole sense of pride and superiority. And so just providentially, I think it's uh, great that this passage about the Lord's, about the Lord's Supper is, is uh, falling on a first Sunday of the month when we Typically, of course, celebrated here as well. So we're going to read about the problem. That's in verses 17 to 22. That described, that, that's Paul's rebuke of their problem. And as we read that, just try to get a cultural scenario in, in mind. They probably met as churches in the New Testament on Sunday evenings in conjunction with the evening meal. And probably every time they met, not once a month, but every time, every Sunday, they would celebrate the bread and the cup together. So let's try to understand the problem. In the following directives or instructions, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, that's coming to worship, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. I mean, th th this is the language of rebuke, isn't it? There, there were definitely problems with how they were treating each other, regarding each other, perceiving each other. Uh, 
I have these instructions, verse 17. I'm going I'm to try to change something here. He wasn't suggesting, he was correcting. And in about six months, Paul would be there again to check on whether this problem had been corrected. I have no praise for you, verse 17, if you were with us in uh, a couple weeks before. Go back to verse 2 where he says, I do praise you for some things. Basically in verse 2, he said, I praise you that you, you're a church that cares about Scripture. You want to do what Scripture says. So that's good. But I can't praise you, some of you, for the attitude you have when you gather. So technically, you're obeying what Jesus said. You are meeting together. You're, you're taking the bread and the cup we'll see, is, is, is a key part of this. But the attitude is somehow ruining worship to the place where your proud, divisive spirit is ruining any attempt or claim that you have that you're, you're really coming to work to honor Christ together as a family, but there's these pride issues, arrogance going on. We can do right things. We're biblical. We're spiritual. We're, we're, we have the right view biblically, right? And yet we can be guilty of sin because we're inflicted with pride, superiority of ourselves over others. So your meetings are doing more harm than good. How can that be? Uh, some of the other words, uh, it, it's not for better, but it's for worse. It's, it's not good because of the relationships that are going on. What is it? Well, there are divisions, verse 18, and I believe it in part. These are probably not the same divisions as in chapter 1 and 2. That was the factions of, I'm of Paul, Apollos, and Peter. Uh, he, he wouldn't have said, I, I believe it in part. He knew that. But this report was filtering in that it, it's a little bit more uh, vague. It's, it's, it's attitudes. I'm hearing about an attitude. And the attitude is that that, that you come together and you don't wait for each other. What is that? Well, we're going to find out it's a, it's a division based on wealth and status. And it seems that the wealthier were, were getting together to eat before. And we'll talk about how that could happen. You know, everywhere else in society, we kind of intuitively notice wealth and status. It's just inevitable. That might be cars or vehicles or zip codes. It can, be, it can be jobs or positions within the company or whatever. And we, It's like inevitable. We kind of just notice things about each other that we make guesses. Well, the world to do, they're not so... And, and he's not so much saying you can't notice those things, but he says you can't import that into the church because wealth and status has to stop at the door when you gather. Because we're all on equal grounds when, when we gather and he says, I believe it in part because there have to be differences. Some of you have the word factions, I think it is, in verse 19. But it's probably just differences. So divisions, no. But differences, yeah, there's a difference because he says it's not, I think it's actually a kind of a compliment because you've got to see who is approved, who is sincere. So he's saying, you guys aren't all guilty of this. And it's not even that all the wealthy were guilty of this. It's just that I'm hearing about it, and, and I, I believe that it's actually happening. Not true of everyone, but we've got to see who is genuine, tested, or, or, or approved. So what is the problem, verse 20 and 21? Here it is. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. 
So they're claiming it's the Lord's Supper. But he says, it doesn't fit the Lord's Supper. Because as you eat, each one goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, the other gets drunk. Let's, let's try to dig into the culture and, and see how church was done there then to get our best deduction of what this scenario must have been like. Some of the wealthier Christians seemingly came and were indulging in a feast before the rest of the more common class would come together to share that same meal. So it's not really the Lord's Supper, he says, that that's happening, because if you think back to when the Lord instituted this, John 13, think of the Lord. He, he was one who humbly washed the feet of the others. He says, you've like flipped that over to where now instead of being humble like the Lord was, you're kind of like arrogantly flaunting your wealth, some of you. The attitude of some was not the attitude of Jesus. Let's, let's try to get a clue what this could mean. Verse 22. Don't you have houses? I have the word homes, but it's, it's really, it's a technical term. Don't you own homes? Don't you possess houses, is what it's really saying, to eat and drink in. Now, when, when we read that, we kind, we're kind of thinking, yeah, okay, we all, we all have our house or, or, or apartment or whatever, but actually that was a distinct description of a, a certain class of people. They're the ones who actually possessed houses. It was unusual. It marked you off. That, you were a somebody if you possessed a house because everybody else rented quarters or else they were servants living in, in the quarters of the person of the estate they worked for. And so there really was a bigger distinction of haves and have not. So, so by saying, don't you own houses? He is actually narrowing it down to, I'm talking to some of you of the wealthier class who are guilty of this. So... Um, who hosted the Corinthian church? Who hosted it? Who hosted any church in the New Testament? They didn't, there were no church buildings uniquely used for, for churches until the third century, basically. So everybody, every church met in a home, and so you would need a larger home. And so it was people who owned houses who would host the church. Who hosted the church in Corinth? Well, Priscilla and Aquila did when it just started, Acts 18. But they moved on with Paul when he went to Ephesus. They hosted the church there. So that probably was a rented situation. Later on, three and a half years later, we know from Romans that, that actually Gaius hosted the church, and he's commended and greeted. So who owned it during that three or so? Who, who hosted the church in maybe the three years between? We just don't know. But we know the problem. Each of you goes ahead with your own supper, your own meal, or your private meal without waiting for others. The culture of Corinth was that the main meal of the day was the evening meal, whether you call it dinner or supper. Uh, late afternoon was when people ate. And it seems to have been just a typical thing that the wealthier class, the land and home owners, business owners, would kind of make that a big deal. And they could eat early because when you are the owner, you can eat when you want to. But it was, it was also seemingly known that, that, the, that the common class, the workers, the slaves, they would come later when the work was done. And that's when they would eat. Uh, we have to realize that Sundays in, in first century 
New Testament times was, was not part of a weekend. Weekend is really a modern idea, basically. So every day was a work day, including Sunday. Shops were open, not closed for the weekend, and, and the fields had to be taken care of, and the livestock had to be tended. So, so it was just a normal day on Sunday. But keep in mind that if indeed the wealthier populace is, is eating dinner when they wanted and the servants came later, then uh, when the work was done, you can see how easily that could become a church problem if they just kind of kept that system going on Sunday. And so the common classes would know when they should eat. And in fact, there's even evidence that, that uh, you look at some of those, those homes of the day that the, the dining rooms weren't that big where the family ate. But the help ate out in the courtyard. So there's both the issue of when they ate, commoners ate later, where they ate, out in the courtyard. And it seems that perhaps that thing was continuing even though they were coming together to eat a meal as a church, to worship, to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And so he says, that's not really the Lord's Supper. In fact, we, we can pretty much tell what the problem is because at the end of the passage, jump to verse 33, you can see what his solution is. There's a very practical application for Corinth. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. God's, the, avoid the discipline he's going to talk about. So it's a very simple solution, guys. It says there's a time when you just ignore culture and you do it different because you're the church. In the church, we are all one family. And, and, and in the church, there is not slave or free or male or female. And so, so you need to lay your culture aside. And on Sunday, because you are a unique people, you need to act like family and you wait for each other. And so you can all enjoy the meal together. And so that issue then in verse 21 about some are hungry and the others are drunk is not even so much that they actually go hungry, but they don't get there in time for the meal. Uh, meanwhile, those who had come earlier, they had, they had their typical feast. They brought most of the food anyhow, right? And, and so, you know, what the others, you know, if they came late, maybe they had to grab a roll from their pantry and their little rented quarters and, and they, but they didn't get to be a part of that meal. Can you see how, how humiliating that could be? That that is imported into the church. Maybe they missed the meal completely. Maybe they just got there in time for, to just like uh, have the, the bread in the cup at the end. Because, yeah, we need to include everybody for that. Maybe they ate in the courtyard. We, some of these things were happening. So don't you have home to eat and drink in? So, so Paul is on one hand saying... Okay, if, 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 you, if you own homes and you have parties, you know, five days a week or six days a week, well, that's fine. Get together with your friends and do that. But when you get together as a church, it should be different. Can I praise you for that? No. No way I'll praise you for that. So, with that kind of rebuke, I, I just pick, kind of picture that this, this letter was read in the church at Corinth when it first arrived from Paul. Can you imagine certain number of people kind of just faces are red and their heads are down because they are the ones who've been doing that. And maybe they just never thought about it. How, how does that make people feel? 
In verses 23 to 26, Paul shifts gears in his letter. It seems rather abruptly to us, but it fits because he says, I want to tell you how seriously important it is to remember Christ's sacrifice. And as you think about that, it'll make you, it'll make you think about your attitudes towards others in the body. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So he goes back to say, let's let's just kind of relive that first time the night Jesus was betrayed. What was that like? What, did, what do you know about that, John 13? You know that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus had washed their feet. Judas betrays in the garden. They get, he gets a, Jesus gets arrested, unjustly tried. He's crucified. Th- just think about that. Uh, I received that from the Lord. Now, Paul wasn't at that last supper, was he? He's not one of the twelve. He was saved later, Acts 9. But this is 20 years into the church age, and so Paul would surely know about the Lord's Supper. They'd been practicing it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give all of Jesus' words. But perhaps this also means that Jesus, in one of those visions to Paul, actually literally uh, revealed this so he had like firsthand experience of what it was like. I passed it on to you, that was three years ago or so, when he had planted the church. He says, I told you about the Lord's Supper then. And uh, so, so we know kind of what happened, and, and Jesus first took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body. The bread would be part of every Passover meal, because the Last Supper uh, was a Passover celebration. It was a once-a-year special meal. And uh, he, he broke it. And uh, he gave thanks because that's what Passover was all about. Uh, Passover meal was instituted uh, by Moses at God's command, saying, you guys need to remember and thank me for delivering you from Egypt. That was 1,400 years before this. If you know the story of Exodus, you know that uh, the Exodus from Egypt was a culmination of some 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And then God raised up Moses to inflict on Pharaoh ten horrible plagues, the tenth one being the death of the firstborn. And, uh, but God instructed Israel, his family, and said, what you do is I want you to have a special meal, and at that meal you're going to sacrifice a lamb, and you're going to take some of that, lamb, that lamb's blood, and you're going to, we can switch to here if we need to, take some of that lamb's blood, and you're going to put it on the doorpost. And when you put it on the doorpost, the angel who comes around to kill all the firstborn in this terrible plague will pass over your house and your child will live. And it was an amazing deliverance. And they, two million people, Israel, they, they, they leave and they go through the Red Sea. All of that, the blood, of course, was the most amazing thing to, to realize that as they were looking back at that deliverance, they didn't realize they were also looking forward to the cross because it would be the cross 
the blood of Christ that we're celebrating today. It'll be the cross that actually pays for the sin of all those who lived before and all those who would live in the future. And every year after that, the last 1,400 years, they were supposed to celebrate that Passover supper, but there were huge seasons of time when in disobedience the people of Israel did not celebrate it. And it was amazing sometimes when some of the kings revived it and said, we've got to do this, and they did it. And, and at the time of Jesus, they actually were. But at that last supper that Jesus celebrated with them, he says, let's take these last two elements, the last piece of bread and that last sip from the common cup. He says, and let's remember what I came here to do. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, Traditional churches in our communities have different views, of course, as to how they see the bread and the cup. Uh, they, they see them, uh, some churches, as having that the bread and the, the, the wine or, or juice actually changes in some physical or spiritual way. There's theological terms, if you've ever heard of them, transubstantiation and consubstantiation that could explain that, and I won't try to explain it. If you, if you know someone from those backgrounds, feel free to ask them or research what that, what, how they understand it. But for us, what we see here in Scripture is simply Jesus' words where he says, this is, basically meaning this represents my body, this represents my blood. That's what the is is. It represents it. We, we would call ours the memorial view, or it's the symbolic view. We believe the bread and the cup are physical illustrations that God gave us to represent so that we don't forget the importance of what he actually did on the cross. To remember, not that what we do is to accomplish anything spiritually. It doesn't change us. It doesn't change in substance. It, it remembers what Jesus did. It's, it's a symbol, um, but an important one. If, if, you, if someone wins a, a medal of honor in military combat, the medal is not the heroic act. The medal is to remind them and others of the heroic act. And likewise, the bread and the cup are not spiritual acts or accomplishments in themselves, but just as the medal is an important symbol because the heroism was important, likewise the bread and cup are extremely important symbols because it remembers and brings to mind for us the eternally important act of Christ on the cross. So taking the bread and cup are not acts of spiritual merit. They do not boost anyone's chance of getting to heaven. It has nothing to do with earning or accomplishing I, I kind of say it facetiously, but very sadly. Um, I remember a time decades ago, actually, where I attended a funeral service in a local, uh, more traditional church. And the minister, as I recall, and I don't have the exact words, made, made this, this statement about this woman, um, who I knew, said, we know that her name, she, is in heaven, because she faithfully took the sacrament of communion and was baptized, meaning as a baby. And I was saddened because I knew the woman. 
And I knew the woman was in heaven at that very moment. She had actually, I'd gotten to know her. Uh, she had come to church some with her adult daughter. And I knew that her faith was in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. And so her faith was not in the sacrament of communion or, or baptism. Her faith was in Christ exactly where it must be. So as we take communion today or any time, remember it's important to remember what is important. And that is why it is part of what Jesus said to continually do. But we're not adding merit or something to our spiritual resume. This bread is broken for you. And we can just, through that picture, the death of Christ on the cross or as his body is broken for us. Bread is visually similar to human flesh, right? So it's a, Jesus says that's perfect. We'll, we'll use the bread to illustrate the fact that, and this is, this is crucial, that I in my body was on the, will be on the cross instead of yours. It should have been us on the cross. And so as we think of, of, the, of the bread, let's focus on a, 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 a doctrinal truth, sometimes called the substitutionary atonement, where he says, broken for you, it means took our place. He was there instead of us on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5, he's already alluded to this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, paid for. Isaiah 5, when 53, when, when, when you know, six, seven hundred years before, it was predicted uh, that, that what the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah, would do. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, so it was our sin, but it's his body. It's his punishment. Took our place. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for us, meaning in our place. Hebrews 9, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, our sins, he bore them. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It, over and over, it is him taking our place. It should have been me. The awfulness of our sin was corrected by the awesomeness of his love for us. And so in those dreadful, holy moments of eternal justice, God the Father turned his face from his own dear, eternal, perfect son, and instead of being one with him, turned from him, as Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? But he poured out his whole, exhaustive, holy wrath of all sin, of all people, of all time, upon Jesus instead of on us. The awfulness of sin required the awfulness of death, but the awesomeness of the love of God meant that Christ bore it for us. So, his body was broken for us. It seems that the bread focuses on the death of Christ while he was on the cross. That makes sense? It was like if, if, if you would think of it in time, what was happening on the cross as he died? And the cup, while still focusing on the death of Christ, focuses on the effects of the cross. 
So he died in our place, the bread broken for you in your place. But this cup is, he says, the new covenant. That's what's new. That's what's changed going forward. So the dot is the bread and the, and the line following as a result is, is the cup. That this is the new covenant, the new relationship of grace that I am established. Everything else has looked forward to the cross. Everything today we look back at the cross and must remember in my blood. Again, an obvious visual. The wine, the juice, looks like, looks like blood. It doesn't turn to blood. It, just, it looks like it to remind us that it took the sacrificial death of Christ. But he says it established an entirely new basis of understanding the why you can, as a sinner, be in a relationship with a holy God. And that is that there is a new covenant of grace. Sins are forgiven. Hebrews 8, 6, but now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he is a mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews is about how Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and he has established the new. Later in same chapter, quoting from about the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So, so the old covenant required um, sacrifices. He'd bring them every, every week. On the, you, you would, you would, there would be sacrifices taking place in the temple. You, you, you needed a temple. You needed priests to represent you. You needed uh, the, the, the rituals of purification. You needed the laws. And he says, that stuff is all becoming obsolete. It wasn't bad, but it was picturing that which would come, that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so no more. The work of Christ completed that. We are under a, an arrangement of grace in two ways. Uh, first of all, we are saved by grace. That's not the focus here. He knows he's writing to Christians. But we are saved by grace where once for all we put our faith in Christ and we have eternal life in heaven, a forgiveness of sins forever. Our, our slate is wiped clean because of Christ, faith in Christ. And so that's grace, but so also is our ongoing relationship as believers based on grace. And so how do we handle sin now that would compare to the old covenant where they had to keep bringing the sacrifices? We don't have to keep bringing sacrifices. So the new covenant is completely different since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. First John is amazing to describe how a believer stays in fellowship with Christ in spite of our sin. If we walk in the light, that is making sure that Hey, we're not, we're not hiding stuff from God. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's us and God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from sin. That's the ongoing cleansing of our relationship with him. How do, you, how, do, how do we experience that? Well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is not that we can remember every sin. It just means that we are open and honest, and God, you, 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 know, you, you saw that, you, you, you know me, you know my heart, and so I need your continual forgiveness. If anyone does sin, and we do, we have an advocate with the Father, he represents us and says, I covered that. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for us. And do you, do, you just, do you sense how we are just bathed in the grace of God, and so our relationship is secure in him, and so it is so important that we remember that, that Jesus says, make sure you always take the bread and the cup, and the cup will indicate that you're in a new relationship of grace now. And keep doing it till I come back, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He hasn't come yet. So we're living in that interval between when he intervaled, when he, when he initiated it and said, do this in remembrance of me and keep doing it until I come back. He hasn't come back. So here we are today. And we are celebrating that which he asked us to do. The final section, Paul then goes back to the issue of Corinth and says, you know, I've I've described the problem to you. You you know who you are, verses 27, or rather 17 to 22. But now verses 27 to 34, he says, I'm going to just warn you about something. God has taken this very seriously, uh, and, and I know this applies most to the Corinthian church, but I think we're going to see a lot that we have to look at our own attitudes as we read what Paul said God was doing in the Corinthian church about this. Verse 23, 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Now, the unworthy manner there is simply the way some at Corinth were regarding others. They were, they were looking down on them. It's their superior attitude. There's so many different ways that we can have a superior attitude. It can be about, it can, it's more than money, but there's so many different ways that we're like, we're better than someone else and trying to, to prove ourselves. So he says, you can't ignore those things because when you, when you, when the Corinthians were excluding these other Christians, that was revolting to, to, the, to the one they claimed to be honoring. You're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, so examine yourself. Look for those attitudes that contradict your worship. Does this examination mean that you basically have to be sinless to take communion, right? No. That's the, that's the blessed thing of, of, of the covenant of grace, is that uh, examine yourself and uh, realize you can't remember all your sin. I mean, don't we keep discovering sin in our life, actually? There's no way you'll remember it all. But there might even be times when you'd say, you know, right now I'm going to refrain from taking communion because there's some spiritual business I've got to take care of before that. And the pattern for that, I think, was set by what Jesus said to, to, um, in the Jewish context before the cross when he described that time. He says, even as you bring in, when, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the temple was functioning, he says, sometime when you bring your, your gift to the altar and you realize your brother has something against you, then just, just leave the gift there. Go take care of that and then come back and worship. So, so realize sometimes, that you don't just go through the motions and look like worship if it's not worship because your heart's not right relationally with others. Verse 29 expands on the warning. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, again, that's a kind of a difficult verse to understand. Eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord or discerning the body of the Lord. There's room for disagreement on how to take that, but the body of the Lord could refer to, uh, you know, could refer to the body of Christ on the cross or the elements that we take, but there's another option. The body of Christ could be a who instead of a what. And I think it actually is referring to disregarding or not having the right attitude towards the body of Christ. Go back to chapter 10, just the previous chapter, 10 verses 16 and 17, where he makes the connection between the bread and the cup and the body as people. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. He's like introducing throughout the book, Christ our Passover, lamb and sacrifice, we're all one body, we take of the same loaf. This is where we are to drop every kind of sense of superiority, I'm better than you, because we are one body. So it seems that the real attitude is being addressed in verse 29. It says, so if you take the bread and the cup without and feeling like you're better than everybody around you or others around you, or you're, you're thinking you know, these, these bitter, resentful thoughts at somebody else, he says, that's, that you're guilty of like violating the whole sense of why God called you together as a church to celebrate what he did for us. So the principle basically is if you mistreat other Christians, if you belittle or even in your attitude look down on them, you are actually mistreating the family for whom Christ died. And, and you probably all know how loyal you are to your family, the, like immediate family, right? I mean, siblings can fight like everything, but then somebody else picks on your brother, and man, you are right there to defend them. Jesus is very loyal to his family. Can you imagine how he feels when, when we say certain things, slander, resent, post on social media or whatever it might be, and we're putting down, talking to another Christian about this Christian, and and that's God's family. That's Christ's family. And he says, you don't want to be doing that. In fact, just to say how serious it is, verse 30 and 30, 31, 32, this is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So clearly he's talking about some kind of a discipline of God upon the Corinthian church on believers. Because we're not part of the judgment of the world. But, but evidently at Corinth, Christ has put some to death their attitude issues, their, their, the way they were treating each other was that serious. Now, I don't know exactly how to apply it today. I still want to test it. 
I just, want, I just want to try to absorb how important it is to Christ that we consider and relate to each other without the attitudes and the, and the, and the antagonism and, and things that, that can develop. We, you just, we just can't think that way. So as we come together, examine ourselves. You can't fix everything. We're, we're a messy people, right? As you come together to, to celebrate communion, it's just a great time for you to think and process, how do I regard people around me? Can't fix it all. We're under the, we're under the covenant of grace. Praise God for that. But if there's something to address, that, that's the time to address it. And then he gets to an immediate application. So then, verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. I mean, that's like the least you could do. It's at least as you gather Seriously, you can't eat an hour later? And if anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. If it's really a, like a dietary thing, you just have to have something. Eat something at home. So that when you meet together, you may, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions or directions. In other words, I'm coming to check if, if, this, if this has changed or not. Wait for those who come later, the commoners, so that the slave, working class, and landowners, we can, we can all join together and enjoy this meal together. I don't know what this looks like for you, attitudes or whatever. We, instead of just criticizing Corinthians, we just got to examine our own hearts. And, and maybe sometimes it's just a matter of like breaking out of our own preferences or friend group even, right? Uh, certain people, they're like, I like them because they're like me. It might mean that, you know, ABF start next week and you go, I won't just sit with my favorite five people, but, but someone who is kind of different than me. I, I'm going to get to know, I'm going to break out of that. Jesus knew how much we would struggle to love each other. He knew just how hard relationships are. And so he says, I'm going to form a, a family. And I'm going to institute this family so that at least one day a week, they're in the same room together. And if, they, if you bring them together in the same room, then they are going to experience all the tensions and the pressures of a relationship. But that's a good thing. Because that will cause them to just think through in their own heart. What are, my, what are my attitudes towards others? And then when they gather, I'm going to give them one special picture that would keep taking them back to the cross to the night in which I was betrayed by one. And after which, actually, the disciples, one of the gospels says, they begin to argue which one is the greatest. And so in spite, in spite of all that messiness, there'll be that one time when they're going to have to just grapple with the fact they are taking the bread and the cup with people all over a room that are very different different stages of spiritual maturity, different viewpoints, different this and that, and they struggle. And, but they're going to say, but you know what? We are one body, and that is going to best honor me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us in our love for you first, that we would so be uh, grateful, living in praise and thanks for what you did for us, because you fixed a relationship in which you were completely holy and we are fully sinful. And then to help us to see how that impacts every relationship that we have and can have in the body of Christ.
that we can indeed love one another in, in a sense of humility, washing one another's feet like you did for us and showed to us that this is how, this is, this is how we distinguish ourselves as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.